Thank you, Tom. It's one of my favorite new hymns, He Will Hold Me Fast, because if he wasn't holding me fast, I would have lost my salvation a long time ago. Uh, that's about all I'm good for. And thankfully, he holds on to us when we um, are so prone to wonder and stray. So we've celebrated the reality that last year, now, 2019, you gave more financially than ever before to the general offering. We've also celebrated that you, give, you gave more to Lottie Moon International Mission Board offering than you ever had before, twice what you gave last year. And, you know, some things happen, a lot of things happen that you may not know about and that we don't talk about publicly, but every dollar that you put into the offering plate not only goes to Cooperative Program, Duck River Baptist Association, those places, but a percentage of that goes into our own mission efforts here as we send people. And then in 2020, that's 2% of every penny you give. But, but at the end of last year, um, I spoke with one of the missionaries that we pray for regularly and, and our ministry guide. He's listed in our ministry guide in Central Asia and was just talking to him about some of his needs. We wanted to bless him, encourage him with your funds, and we were able to give him a, a large sum of money to print some books that, that he needed printed to give out to the people there in Central Asia. But he mentioned a pastor that had come in from Bulgaria for training and he said, this pastor is legitimate. I mean, he's sincere. He's passionate about the gospel. He's doing a very difficult work and a very good work in a very hard place. And he said, the pastor mentioned to me in passing that he had 10 families in his church that were so poor that he was afraid they would starve to death during the winter. He said, the church doesn't have the financial ability to feed them, to help them. And I fear they're going to starve in the winter. And he said, he mentioned that to me in passing. He really struck me as a, as a very impressive guy. So when we heard that, we said, how much would it take to feed these 10 families? And you would be surprised at how little uh, it takes to feed 10 families in Bulgaria through the winter. So we did. We sent some of your money to Bulgaria. And they quickly sent back pictures. They were so thankful, so excited. And in a roundabout way, your giving in 2019, just your general offering giving, saved the lives of 10 families who know Christ in Bulgaria, who we may never get to see this side of eternity, but one day we can be gathered around the throne with them, and they'll look at us and say, thank you for being faithful to give, and thank you for being faithful to steward your money to something that has eternal value as you look outward to not only expand, expand expand the gospel from here to the ends of the earth, but to minister to the least of these, my brethren. So I just wanted to show you those pictures. Thank you for your giving, and let you hear a thank you from them, how grateful they are to uh, you for your faithful giving, and how the Lord orchestrated that to allow us to be a part of that. So I wanted you to, to celebrate that and, and be aware of that. Just one of multiple things that happened with uh, our funds this year to bless those in other cultures and other settings and situations. We're back in Luke, Luke chapter 3, if you'll turn there. We're, we're really still winding up the gospel of Luke. We haven't really gotten into Christ's ministry yet. We're asking the question as we walk through this gospel, and it's going to be a lengthy process, but we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Uh, we all have our minds wrapped around who we think Jesus is, but who, who is Jesus according to the word of 
God. And we've already seen as we began this study, and I just want to review you, bring you up to speed on where we've been since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Luke's gospel. We've already seen that Luke's account of the life of Jesus is absolutely reliable. It is a reliable account of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. We saw back all the way back in chapter 1 that Luke had searched multiple accounts that were recorded of Jesus' life. He interviewed multiple eyewitnesses. He took all of the information he gathered and put it together into a well-thought-out account, a two-volume series, so to speak, on the life of Jesus and the acts of the apostles. So Luke gives us most of the New Testament. We want to attribute Paul and say Paul gave us most of the New Testament. But when you look at chapters and verses and size of volumes and you consider the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, if you read those two books, you actually have read most of the New Testament. Testament. He gave us more than any other, any other writer of the New Testament. We learned that the 400 years of silence that stretched between Malachi and Matthew chapter 1 was broken in the Gospel of Luke and according to the Gospel of Luke with two angelic visits. One angelic visit to a man named Zechariah, one angelic visit to a woman named Mary, a young woman named Mary. The silence was broken not only with two angelic visits but with two miraculous events. One of those miraculous events happened in an old barren womb. Another of those miraculous events happened in a young virgin womb. We see that there were two promised births that launched into this new covenant and this new time frame upon earth. It was the promised birth of John the Baptist who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and it was the promised birth of Jesus Christ the Messiah. We learned that Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom in stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. And now today we come to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, and we see, we see preparation for the arrival of Jesus. We see the preparation for the launching of Jesus' earthly ministry as John the Baptist comes on the scene. Now we're going to walk through this text, and we're going to spend most of our time just reading through the text, and then we're going to make some quick points there at the end. But, but right off at the beginning, as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 3, we are reminded, we're reminded that this is a reliable account. The things, the things that we claim as Christian were not done in secret. The things we claim as Christian were not done in secret. Luke gives us very specific historical dates, very specific historical figures, and he tells us the story of Jesus in a very reliable way. In fact, just go back to Luke chapter 1 really quick in verse 5 and look at the detail that Luke gives us in his account. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, he sets the stage and he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he gives us this setting. This is during the days of Herod, king of Judea. And then if you turn to Luke chapter 2, and you look in verses 1 and 2, he does the same thing. He sets the stage with some historical, reliable, factual evidence. In chapter 2 and verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why is he giving us all of this detail? So that you can fact check Luke 
with what he wrote in his gospel. And now we come to Luke chapter 3 and he does the same thing as he transitions again into the ministry of John the Baptist preparing and launching the way for Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 3 he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Idaria and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan. You have so many details, so many specifics there that you can go back and you can fact check. That It would be like you saying, it was as if you were to say, Kevin Ivey became the pastor of First Baptist Church in 2017 when Donald Trump was president of the United States, when Bill Haslam was governor of Tennessee, and when Lane Curley was mayor of the city of Tullahoma. Randy Davis was the president of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board at that time, and Mark Puckett was the director of missions for the Duck River Baptist Association. All of that you can go back and check and see if it measures up. And if it doesn't, you can pull the plug on that gospel. Luke gives us all of this information. It is reliable. It is verifiable. It is factual history that we can hang our hat on. We can count on. Archaeology and history both confirm the accuracy of Luke's account. And he gives us plenty of ammunition to check him with. Sir William Ramsey, regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists ever to have lived, concluded after 30 years of study the following. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. So we're just reminded of that as we begin to get into this text in in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, that Luke's account is reliable. He's giving us factual, verifiable, reliable history. And you go on and look in verse 3. It says, He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, so John is coming into the region of the Jordan, which happens to be Judea, which happens to be the area surrounding Jerusalem, which happens to be the homeland of the Jews. And he comes into this area preaching to these Jews a baptism And not just a baptism, but a baptism of repentance. And not just a baptism of repentance, but a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. How many times do you see someone baptized in the Old Testament? Baptism was not a common practice in Old Testament history leading up to the time of John the Baptist. In fact, the only people who were baptized were Gentiles who decided to become followers of Yahweh, become followers of God. So what are these Jews doing who are supposed to be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What are these Jews doing getting baptized? This is for Gentiles who are non-Jews so that they can become Jews and worship the one true God. For these Jews to come to John as he's preaching a baptism and a baptism of repentance and a baptism of repentance based on forgiveness of sins, they were saying, I am not an insider 
just because I'm a Jew. I'm not qualified for heaven just because I was born a Jew. I am not going to enter paradise just because I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Something else needs to happen. I am technically, spiritually an outsider, and I am admitting that I need to be baptized with a baptism declaring my repentance because I need to be forgiven of sins just like the Gentiles. That's a big pill to swallow for a Jew, is it not? For a Jew to come out and say, my Jewishness is not sufficient to save me. And there's some Baptists who need to hear that, who think that a Jew's Jewishness is going to mean they go to heaven. John the Baptist didn't think so. Jesus didn't think so. And we know it's not so. Jewishness doesn't get you to heaven. So they come out and they say, I'm admitting my Jewishness is not enough to get me to heaven. I need to be baptized, not just for the sake of getting physically wet. I need to get baptized as a public profession that I am repenting of my sin and receiving forgiveness of sin by faith in the promised Messiah of God. These Jews from Jerusalem and Judea were admitting that their Jewishness and their religiosity did not guarantee them a right standing before God. And this made John's baptism very offensive. He was just sowing the seeds for Jesus, who would later come and say, who would later come and say, just because you have Abraham as your father, don't think that you have God as your father. Setting the stage for Paul, who would say, those who are truly Jews are not those who have experienced outward circumcision, but those who have experienced inward circumcision of the heart. John's baptism is implying that unless the Jews were willing to repent, they were not really Jews at all, and they could not count on the promised blessings that God had given to his chosen people. Verse 4 says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths Straight, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now that's a real attractive message, isn't it? Here's a crowd of people who are willing to come out and subject themselves to something that Jews normally did not subject themselves to. And he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. What is a brood, right? It's a nest of babies. And who is the viper? In Genesis chapter 3, who is the snake? It's Satan, right? So basically John the Baptist is saying, you offspring of Satan, you seed of Satan, why are you coming out here to be baptized for me? That's an attractive message. Maybe we'll put that on the church sign. You seed of Satan... Why would you want to come to Baptism Sunday on February the 9th? That would draw a crowd, wouldn't it? That's what John the Baptist is saying to them. You brood of vipers, he warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 8, therefore, this is key to the whole passage here, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So John the Baptist is saying to them, listen, if you claim that you want to subject yourself to this baptism of mine, then you need to bear fruit 
proving your repentance. Don't just come down here and say, hey, I repent, and I want to get baptized, and I want to get in on this thing that looks like God's doing. No, you, yes, get baptized. Yes, profess your repentance, but you better prove your repentance. Prove your repentance by your actions. This is John's message. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you hear it put this way. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of action. He's calling for a drastic change among these Jews so that they can get ready for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. For, the ju- for judgment is coming and the judge is coming and the judge is going to be looking for fruits to judge you by. Not just what you say, but what you do. That's why Jesus came saying, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. It's not just about you saying, hey, Jesus, I take you as my Lord. Hey, Jesus, let me repeat this sinner's prayer to you. Hey, Jesus, let me mean it from my heart of heart of heart of heart of hearts. No, you, anybody on earth can say Jesus is Lord. The ones who enter the kingdom of heaven are not just those who profess Him as Lord, but those who possess Him as Lord, and it transforms their life and they bring forth fruit. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he makes that very clear. That true repentance will be accompanied by fruit. Because in verse 10, the crowds raise a question to him. And they say, then what shall we do? John, you're, you're baptizing us. You're demanding repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now what do we need to do? How do we bear this fruit? What does it look like? And in verse 11, he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? That's interesting. You got, it sounds like Roman soldiers showing up on the scene questioning him. What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Bear fruit, keeping with repentance. Transformation. Something should be different than the way you act. There should be tangible, visible verifiable differences in how you conduct yourself if you have truly repented. Jesus makes this clear too, and we'll, see, we'll look at this in more detail in the future, but in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, Jesus began telling this parable. It says, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. Let's stop there for a minute, and I'll just read over it. There's a fig tree planted in a vineyard. This isn't a fig tree farm. This is a vineyard, and vineyard is made up of vines, not trees, right? So there's a vineyard, and this man owns the vineyard, and he says, you know what? In this mighty vineyard, I want to plant a fig tree. Now, do you think he's just going to throw the fig tree out there and forget about it? He says he came looking for fruit on it, and he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Now stop there again and let's recognize that he comes to the the vineyard keeper. That means there's a guy out here who's pruning these vines. 
There's a guy out here who's watering these vines. There's a guy out here who is fertilizing these vines. And you know that because the vineyard keeper or, or the vine dresser placed his his fig tree in the midst of the vineyard, that the vineyard keeper is not ignoring this tree as he tends to the vines. This, this fig tree has been placed in a vineyard with a vineyard keeper who is keeping careful watch over this tree. He's, he's nurturing this tree. He's watering this tree. He's pruning this tree. He's fertilizing this tree. And the owner of the vineyard comes after three years and he says, there's no fruit. Cut the thing down. It's taking up ground that I could use for more vines. Why does it use up the ground? Not only is it not producing me anything, it's wasting my ground. In verse 8, he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. The end. We don't find out what happened. It's just over. The story's over. The guy keeping the vineyard said, just give me one more year with it. I'm going to nurture it. I'm going to baby it. I'm going to put some fertilizer around it. If it doesn't bear fruit next year, we will cut it down. Just give me one more year. You realize how close that fig tree came to being cut down in the parable? Go back to verse 9. Listen to what John the Baptist says as he is preaching to the Jews that come to him for baptism. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist is just setting the, setting the stage for Jesus, the vineyard keeper, to come to his special fig tree Israel and dig around it and fertilize it with his miracles to dig around it and fertilize it with his teaching to dig around it and fertilize it with his presence and give it an opportunity to bear fruit what kind of fruit the fruit of repentance that John the Baptist was preaching about that Jesus was preaching about when he gave this parable he came to give it one more chance to bear that fruit in keeping with repentance or it's going to be cut down and we know what happens we know what happens. They didn't bear fruit and they were cut down. Cut off, Romans says. And a wild branch was grafted in. And that happens to be us. John the Baptist comes warning them that the vine dresser is coming. The one who's mightier than he is coming. And his winnowing fork was in his hand. And would they bear fruit in keeping with repentance or not? Verse 15 it says, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered. And if I was C.H. Spurgeon, I would have stopped and I would have preached on that first part of verse 15 right there. The people were in a state of expectation. That sounds like something you would just grab and preach on for an hour. The people were in a state of expectation. Some translations say they were waiting expectantly. Have you ever been to church and you're, and you're walking in the doors and there's just a feeling of expectancy in your heart and you just, you're expecting, you're expecting people to be there. You're expecting to encounter God in worship. You're expecting to hear from His Word. You're expecting to leave differently. You're expecting God to show up in a special way. You're expecting something powerful to happen. You're expectant when you walk in. It makes all the difference when you walk in expectant versus walking in out of obligation because I'm supposed to be here to check the box. 
These people were expectant. Something big is going on. God is doing something. God is working. Something is happening. And I am expecting to see a miracle. John, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one we've been waiting on? And I love this. John says, you aren't expecting me. And he turns the attention directly to Jesus. Verse 16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You think this is something? You think this is expectation worthy? Guess what? There's a guy coming. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and take his sandal off. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. to Don't think, don't think that Old Testament Jews did not have the gospel. Old Testament Jews were not saved by being Jews. Old Testament Jews were not saved by sacrificing. Old Testament Jews were not saved by keeping the law. Old Testament Jews were saved by the gospel. They didn't have a clear picture of it like we do. They were looking through a glass dimly, but they knew they needed to put their faith and their trust in the one who was yet to come. Abraham believed the promises of God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Every Jew from the Old Testament who will be in heaven is one who believed the promises of God and put their faith in him and put their hope in him and believed the gospel message that God was sending a lamb. John comes and he's preaching the gospel. He's putting the emphasis on Jesus. It was about Christ. It was about His gospel. And that should be and must be the case for us as well. It shouldn't be about us. It shouldn't be about you. It should be about Jesus. Now, if you want to fill a stadium, we talk about you. Let me tell you how wonderful you are. We're all so wonderful. We're so wonderful, we really don't even need to talk about Jesus. We're so wonderful. I mean, how could he resist us? I mean, that'll fill a place up. We like to hear how wonderful we are because we don't want to admit how horrible we are in our hearts. Let's just expose some hearts here this morning. Let's just take my heart, make a video of what's played through my heart this week, put it on the screen, and let's see how wonderful I am. I'll go ahead and leave the building now, and you would too. Because we're not all that wonderful. But if you want to pack a building, let's talk about how wonderful we are. If you want to be truthful and see lives transformed, let's talk about how wonderful Christ is. And how good His gospel is. And how when we, when we do our very best to run and to stray, His grace and His sovereign hand holds us fast in spite of us. Let's talk about that. That's what John the Baptist did. He put, the, put, the, he put the, the, the spotlight on Jesus. He had every, he had every opportunity to get a, a million Twitter followers, a million Facebook likes, start a podcast, sign Bibles after he was done preaching, write a best-selling book, travel the globe, 
He had every opportunity. These people are waiting expectantly, and they are impressed with John. And he had every opportunity to put himself on a platform, but he immediately, immediately says, you're looking at the wrong guy. The guy you want to be looking at is coming soon, and I can't even bend down and take his shoe off. I'm so unworthy. And his name is Jesus, and he's bringing good news of the gospel. Let me preach that to you. Oh, you would think that would be so attractive. You would think that would be welcomed. But the reality is, the gospel is offensive. The gospel message is offensive. The gospel message brings suffering. The gospel message brings persecution. The gospel message brings trial. And it even did for John. Read on in verse 19, when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And Luke just rolls on. That's it, John. You got locked up in prison. The end of you. We've got bigger people to talk about, and his name is Jesus. Now, that seems like a low point to end on with this guy who Jesus says is the greatest man born of women on earth. John the Baptist, and yet Luke just says, yeah, Herod locked him up. Now let's talk about Jesus. Matthew gives us some more insight into what happened. Let's look at that really quickly. Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12. Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12. We find that Herod had John arrested, what we just learned in Luke. This is Matthew 14 and verse 3. For when Herod had John arrested... He bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Apparently Herod looked at his sister-in-law and said, I'd rather you be my wife than my brother's wife. So if you know what's good for you, Philip, hand her over. Herod was known for killing plenty of people. He'd have killed Philip. John had been saying to him in verse 4, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Well, that's where we're going to end this morning. But I thought we better go back because we don't want to end there, right? pastor ended the sermon with John the Baptist's head on a platter and his headless body buried by his disciples. And we all went to Sunday school. <laughs> Encouraged. <laughs> I didn't write it. What we see here is the life of John the Baptist really pointed to Christ. It was all about Jesus. He comes on the scene until Jesus comes on the scene in the next verse. And when Jesus comes on the scene in the next verse, John the Baptist disappears from the scene. It's over. He must increase, I must decrease. So we're introduced to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry here. And I think at the heart of this text 
In verses 4 through 6, we see the heart of John the Baptist's ministry and the heart of Jesus' ministry all wrapped in these verses. And I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to just remind us of them so we can end on a high note. Okay, verse 4 through 6. The prophet Isaiah is being quoted here, and it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. This summarizes John's message. This summarizes Jesus' purpose for coming in three words. One, preparation. Verse number four, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist's ministry was summarized by preparation. And the image that we have here is of, in ancient times is of a herald who would come before a king announcing the king's coming and making sure the road on which the king would travel was smooth and ready. John the Baptist is that herald. He is coming to prepare the way. He's coming to make sure that the road is smooth. He's coming to make sure that the Messiah King gets on the scene smoothly. That's what John the Baptist is here for. Preparation. Secondly, devastation comes with John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. In verse 5, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth. And that sounds all sweet until you drive from here to Shelbyville and you see what they are doing to bring down every mountain and every hill and cause the crooked to become straight and the rough roads to become smooth. They're tearing the world up. John the Baptist is coming as the preparer, the herald who is preparing the way for the Lord. And he's saying, listen, for the new covenant to come, there's got to be not only some preparation, there's got to be some devastation. Some hills are going to be brought down. Some valleys are going to be raised up. Some crooked ways are going to be made straight. We are going to devastate every barrier to slow down the speed with which the Messiah is coming. Barriers like the law and circumcision will come down. Don't you think for a single solitary second that you've got to take the law found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and live it out letter by letter, carefully as the Jews lived it out in order to be pleasing to God? You don't have a chance. Wear you some mixed cloth garments. Boil that baby goat in its mother's milk. Get you a piercing. Get you a tattoo. We could go on and on and on and on. Why are you some tassels? Don't grow out the locks of your hair. I mean, you start reading those things and you go, how in the world do they keep up with all of this? Jesus came to take that Old Testament, Old Covenant law and say, this is not necessary to come to me and to be pleasing to me. It is necessary. It's important to know. It's important to learn. But it all points to Christ. Every single thing in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in that law, ultimately, some way, shape, form, or fashion, brings us to the feet, to the knees of Jesus Christ. The barriers of the law and of circumcision come down. No longer do you have to be physically circumcised to be fit for the kingdom. You become 
internally, spiritually circumcised, and you're fit for the kingdom. Barriers like race and culture and nationality will come down. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no red, yellow, black, or white, or any shade in between. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be an American. You don't have to be Western to know Jesus. In fact, there's people who aren't American who aren't Western that know Jesus better than we know Jesus. And if you don't believe that, it's because you've never met any of them. You've never been where they are. When everything they have has been snatched out from under them and all they have is Jesus, yes, they know Jesus better than us. Race and culture and nationality, none of that matters. It's it's a level ground at the foot of the cross. Barriers like sacrifices will come down. Do you see how much stuff these people had to sacrifice and how meticulous they had to be in sacrificing it? The blood would run in the streets. There would be so many sacrifices. Those barriers will come down. All of those barriers will come down. And when Jesus from the cross was said, Tetelestai, it is finished. The veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two. And that was God's way of saying, Come in, you court of the Jewish men. Come in, you court of the Jewish women. Come in, you court of the Gentiles. Come in, you deformed people. Did you know the Bible says deformed people can't... Enter into the temple. Got a limb a little shorter than another one, you can't enter into the temple. If you were misfortunate enough to be born a little person, can't come into the temple. Multiple physical handicaps, not welcome in the temple. But the veil was torn. The veil was torn and the door was open for anybody and everybody to come in and know Jesus and know God. Barriers came crashing down. There was preparation. John the Baptist came preparing the way. There was devastation. The barriers are wiped out so that the road can be straight and the road can be smooth for number three, salvation to come. Verse six, all flesh, all flesh will see the salvation of God. The way is open for Jew and for Gentile alike to see the salvation of God. The rich and the poor alike to see the salvation of God. The way is open for us to repent and be forgiven. And if Jewishness does not save, then Gentilishness does not condemn. Salvation's for everybody who will repent of their sin and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's what we see in the message of John. That's what we see in the ministry of Jesus. It's a ministry of preparation, devastation, and ultimately salvation that has come for all flesh. And it is for you this morning. If you will hear, if you will believe, if you will repent and follow Christ. See, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come and to live a sinless, spotless, perfect, holy, righteous life. The life that God requires and demands us to live. The life that we could never live perfectly. And yet Jesus lived it perfectly on our behalf. And Jesus came not only to live the life that God requires of us perfectly on our behalf, but He came to go to the cross. And there on the cross, He suffered under the just wrath of the Father for our sin. And He poured out His judgment on our sin, on Christ, on the cross, until Jesus said, it is finished. It has been paid in 
full and he was buried in a barred tomb with our sin and on Sunday morning the stone was rolled away. He was raised from the dead, triumphant and victorious so that anyone from any background, from anywhere who turned away from their sin, who repented and their hearts changed, their desires changed, their minds changed, their actions changed, they repent of their sin and they put their faith and their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone that they can be transformed by the power of his gospel and they can bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's exactly what Paul said. God said, go Paul, turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Paul said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared to people everywhere that men everywhere must repent, turn to God, and do works proving their repentance. Listen, salvation has come for everyone who will turn from their sin, repent of their sin, turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and bear fruit, keeping with that repentance and that profession. Salvation has come. You've heard the gospel. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. The way has been prepared. Devastation of the old covenant has been accomplished. And the new covenant has come so that all flesh may see the salvation of God. Are you all flesh or are you not? If you're all flesh and you've heard the gospel message, you've seen the salvation of God in the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to consider this morning repenting of your sin and trusting Him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace, Your mercy. We thank You for the ministry of John the Baptist as he came on this scene calling Jews to repent, calling Jews to a baptism of repentance, pointing the finger to Jesus, suffering and dying for His faithfulness to you and your word. God, as we see John the Baptist put the emphasis on Christ, I pray that we would do the same and we would be a part of seeing you bring salvation to many. Lord, you've prepared the way You've removed out-of-the-way barriers, and you've brought salvation. And I pray that you would challenge us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.